From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. The removal of classified information and the storage of TSSCI, it's potentially endangering national security. If it were anybody else but the president, a former president, they would be facing criminal charges now for this behavior. That's Michelle Flournoy. For over two decades, she's been one of the country's most widely respected voices on national security and foreign policy. During President Obama's first term, Flournoy served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. That made her, at the time, the highest-ranking woman in the history of the Pentagon. I spoke with Flournoy about the most pressing foreign policy issues facing our country today, from Afghanistan to Russia and Ukraine to China and Taiwan. But she also took me back to 2011 and recounted what it was like to be inside the Situation Room during the bin Laden raid. And she shared the lessons she's learned about presidential leadership in crisis, both what to do and what not to do. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, Politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Leslie, who writes, Love the podcast. Could you please explain the difference between a magistrate signing off on the Mar-a-Lago search warrant versus a federal judge? I've heard suggestions that it is a lesser level of authority and therefore a shortcut by DOJ. Leslie, thanks for your question, but that's not right. It's not a shortcut. The standard operating procedure in federal courts and in U.S. attorney's offices all around the country is that a magistrate judge is the person in the first instance who signs off on, blesses, approves a search warrant. It's part of the magistrate's duties and responsibilities. By the way, a magistrate is in fact a federal judge. The distinction is between a magistrate judge, a federal magistrate judge, and a federal district court judge. Federal district court judges are appointed by the president, have to be confirmed by the Senate, and have life tenure just like on the Supreme Court. Magistrate judges are not selected by the president, do not have to be confirmed by the Senate, but are instead, with some variations throughout the country, selected by the sitting federal district court judges that I just mentioned. Federal magistrate judges are extremely competent, accomplished, and have a lot of hard work to do in their jobs. Magistrate judges also often oversee guilty plea proceedings, resolve discovery disputes, and help parties negotiate resolutions in civil cases, among a whole variety of other things. 
So any suggestion that DOJ took a shortcut by going to a magistrate instead of a federal district court judge, those suggestions are just silly and evidence of lack of knowledge on the part of the people who are making those allegations. Now, there's nothing precluding prosecutors and federal law enforcement agents from going to a life-tenured federal district court judge to get signed off on a search warrant. That happens from time to time in a variety of circumstances. You may recall that it was a federal district court judge, not a magistrate, named Paul Etkin, a judge in the Southern District of New York, who signed off on the search warrant with respect to Rudy Giuliani's residences, workplaces, and electronic devices. So it happens from time to time, but not necessary and certainly not required. A related question comes in this tweet from Nathan, who says, explain the distinction of a warrant and an affidavit with respect to a Department of Justice release of information publicly. So this is a question or some version of this question that comes up a lot, and it can be confusing to lay people. So the warrant itself, the search warrant itself, is merely a short document, often just one page, that is the authorization granted by a judge for the performance of the execution of the search warrant. It is the thing that agents show to the owner of the premises to be searched and left behind with the owner of the premises to be searched so that that person knows there is a federal judge who has authorized the search. And it doesn't contain a lot of information. There may be an attachment or two that suggests which statutes are being investigated. Mostly it just contains, with specificity, the premises to be searched and the kinds of things that the judge has blessed the searching of. So the search warrant is signed by the magistrate judge. The affidavit is signed by a federal law enforcement officer or agent. The affidavit is not a short document. It's a lengthy document. It can run dozens of pages, scores of pages. It can even run to 100 or 200 pages. And it is the thing that sets forth the basis for the probable cause that the judge is required to find to authorize the search. And so with respect to the release of information publicly, the search warrant itself does not really compromise an ongoing investigation. In fact, it is a thing that gets given to the owner of the premises in the first place. And that person can, of course, reveal the search warrant, talk about the search warrant. And so there's no expectation of further privacy on the part of the government with respect to the search warrant. With respect to the affidavit, there are lots of concerns about the release of information publicly, including the compromise of an ongoing investigation. People can find out that they might be under investigation. They might destroy or get rid of evidence. They might change their testimony. They may coordinate their testimony. It may be that there are sensitive confidential informants or cooperating witnesses whose identities might be revealed if the affidavit became public and you want to protect them until the appropriate time. And those are some of the things that were pointed out by the Justice Department in their opposition to a request to unseal the search warrant affidavit in connection with the Mar-a-Lago search. By the time you hear this podcast, a judge may have already determined whether or not to grant the motion to unseal the affidavit. I doubt that that will happen because, again, it is standard operating procedure in almost every case for an affidavit, not the warrant, but the affidavit in support of a search warrant to be sealed until such time as it's needed to be provided to the defense in case there's a charge during ordinary discovery. This question comes in a tweet from, I think it's Tennessee, who asks, am I remembering correctly that in a civil case, it is allowable to make an inference of guilt when a subject takes the fifth? Not so in criminal cases, but in a civil case, yes, right? Well, yes, you have a very good point that the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination is most directly related when criminal liability is in the offing, where liberty is at stake. So in criminal cases, not only do you have the right to take the Fifth, the fact that you've taken the Fifth cannot be used against you. It is one of the greatest violations of trial practice on the part of the government or a prosecutor 
to say anything about a defendant's right to remain silent or the fact that the defendant did not testify at trial. You can't talk about it. You can't draw any inference from it. You can't assume anything from it. Not so in a civil matter. In a civil matter, depending on the circumstances, the enforcement party or the plaintiff can ask the jury or the judge to draw what's called an adverse inference from the fact that the person didn't speak or pled the Fifth Amendment. By the way, just one more little quibble. When we talk about an inference of guilt in a civil case, it's not quite the right terminology. In criminal cases, we talk about guilty or not guilty. In civil cases, we talk about liable or not liable. It's a small difference, but it's an important one. We'll be right back with my conversation with Michelle Flournoy. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. Michelle Flournoy served as a top Pentagon official in both the Obama and Clinton administrations. She self-identifies as a Democrat, which made it a bit surprising when General James Mattis, who had just been named Secretary of Defense by President Trump, called and asked her to be his number two. She turned him down. But that's the kind of respect she garners in Washington. It was also a preview of the kinds of tough decisions that many officials had to make in the Trump era. Work for a dangerous president or risk that he goes unchecked. Michelle Flournoy, thank you so much for joining the show. It's great to be with you, Preet. So I have to ask you, given that it's 
what is in the news and I keep getting asked questions about it and keep talking about it. And it's, you know, if not right in your wheelhouse, at least adjacent to your wheelhouse, given your focus and experience in national security, this whole business of the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, um, the issue of whether or not President Trump, according to his allies, had a standing order or understanding that everything he took to Mar-a-Lago was automatically declassified. What do you make of all that? Well, as someone who's held a security clearance uh, and has had to sign all the associated paperwork uh, and go through all of the training and uh, briefings on how you handle it uh, correctly, um, the removal of classified information and the storage of TSSCI or you know top secret compartmented information, which is the most highly classified uh, information, um, in a personal safe <laughs> that's not in a skiff, that's not in a you know a validated secure facility. To me, that just it's it's potentially endangering national security, and I don't believe that the president has the sort of um, declassification authority or that he w- it was properly exercised to say, okay, we're going to treat all of these nuclear secrets or these documents related to negotiations with North Korea or whatever else is in that stack. You know, I, I don't think it was handled properly. If it were anybody else but the president, a former president, they would be facing criminal charges now for this behavior. Did you ever take such material to your home? Absolutely not. And if someone in your employee had taken such material home, what would have happened to them? They would have been uh, lost their clearances and likely been fired. Would you refer them to the FBI for prosecution? Well, they, I mean, the, 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 it, automatically there would be a law enforcement investigation because it is a criminal act. What do you think about arguments that I've heard made and on certain occasions, you know, I've understood that we overclassify things and there's classified, and then there's classified. And if these materials were, you know, a little bit sensitive, but weren't really relating to nuclear secrets or ongoing national security threats, it's not that big a deal. Do you distinguish between levels of classification? Yes. I mean, uh, you know, we do tend to overclassify. That is a fair criticism. But, um, you know, I don't think uh, in this case it's relevant to things that are classified top secret at, at SCI are, tend to be things that were we know because of very, very sensitive sources and methods. And the rev- revelation of that um, material can both cause grave harm to U.S. national security and can compromise uh, very sensitive um, sources of gathering intelligence. So it's not something that an individual, you know, can sort of decide um, based on their own personal judgment at their convenience. It's something that has to be done very carefully um, when you choose to declassify information of that nature. Um, so I, I doubt that if something's in the TSSCI bucket, that it, it was, you know, simply a matter of overclassification. Sometimes it's, it's more applied to things that are made confidential or even secret, um, perhaps not because of, you know, the sensitivity of the intelligence, but because an administration doesn't want it to get out. 
Um, but in this case, I think there's ample evidence of no kidding, cla truly appropriately classified information that is very, very sensitive, both in substance and in the source. Have you ever been part of a declassification process? Yes. And am I right that when something is classified, either top secret or sensitive compartmented information, TSSCI, you see that on the face of the document. That's how people know, right? Yes, and you know, and you also see who put that classification on. You know, and the president is a, a president is given pretty wide authorities to 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 uh, classify and declassify, but there is, should be a process. <laughs> There's a process where right. it is reviewed by various parts of the the U.S. government um, to you know validate or either say yes, we have no problem with this, or no, we have some concerns, and you should take these into consideration before you make this decision. So there's a process, and it looked like none of that was followed. Right, and to be fair, so people understand as a practical matter, if a document has on its face, and I think generally on every page, if it's TSSCI, and then there's a declassification process, you have to change the designation on the document. Yes. So that other people know that they can handle the material differently and it doesn't have to be in a skiff and it doesn't have to be in a safe. Yes. And fair to say, if, if that didn't happen, if the designations on the documents didn't change, that the declassification process did not happen. Not in full. Not, not, in, not in the right. correct manner. I want to shift gears for a moment. So it's been hard to believe. It's been a year since the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think this week marks the one-year anniversary. Do you have any thoughts as you look back on how that process went? Well, I think the administration itself has um, recognized that the execution of the withdrawal did not go as well as planned. I think they were surprised by the speed with which the Afghan government collapsed and the progress that the Taliban was able to make in terms of taking over uh, Kabul and major cities much more quickly than had been predicted by the intelligence community. Um, I, you know, one of the things that I really valued in the Pentagon culture is a culture of doing lessons learned. You know, the military, after every exercise, after every operation, they do what's called an AAR, an after action review. And it's a, a very candid process uh, um, where people at all levels of the chain of command sort of go through what worked, what didn't work, um, what can we learn, how do we do better in the future. And um, I actually personally had a chance to lead an after-action review after the Battle of Mogadishu in Somalia. And we did a no-kidding lessons learned from that. I would hope that there's some process going on internally where we are learning, you know, from how the um, how the withdrawal was executed, because I I think that there were some very strong positives. I mean, I don't think any other military in the world could have evacuated that many people in that short amount of time. But I think the level of chaos and some of the loss uh, the losses that were suffered, you know, those were things that did not go as planned or hoped, and we should we should be learning from that as an institution. Is it your view that we should have stayed longer? You know, my personal view, had I been, you know, in the administration advising, I probably would have been advocating for uh, keeping a residual, a small residual presence. But I understand, you know, the president 
um, felt uh, bound by a, an agreement negotiated by the ta- uh, the Trump administration with the Taliban that sort of created a set of expectations that would likely have escalated the war um, if we had chosen to stay. And he chose that he, you know, he didn't want to deal with that. It was time, you know, that he judged the war to be unwinnable and, you know, he's the president, he was the elected representative, and he got to make the hard choice. And I'm sure it was a hard choice um, given all that was invested in Afghanistan, yeah. given the reper- repercussions that we've seen. But, um, you know, I I think I probably would have weighed in on the alternative course of action, but I also think that, um, you know, he gets to decide. And um, I just would have hoped that the execution could have been done better. How much should we expect military forces, intel services, to predict properly how things are going to unfold? I know it's a very broad question, but I'm just reminded that when we talk about Afghanistan, we, we underestimated how quickly uh, it would fall. And then in a different location, completely different circumstances at a different time in Ukraine, we also underestimated how much resistance the Ukrainians would bring to bear against the Russians. Before we talk about Ukraine and Russia, I just wonder if you could speak generally about the difficulty of understanding and predicting what is going to happen, or is that too obvious a question? No, it it is very challenging. And actually, I would give our intelligence community enormous credit for predicting that that Putin was actually going to invade. Right. I mean, we they called it, and many many people, most people, most European uh, partners were saying, no, 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 this is just an exercise. He's bluffing. He's not actually going to come across the border. And they got it right. I think what's common in underestimating both the Ukrainian resistance and the speed of the Afghan collapse is that our intelligence community does not assess our own actions as a variable in the equation. So it didn't assess um, the you know the amount of training and advising and preparation that we and the UK and Canada and other NATO allies did with Ukrainian forces after Crimea. So the Ukrainian military of 2022 was actually very different than the Ukrainian military of 2014. And that's part of what we've seen playing out on the battlefield. Similarly with Afghanistan, you know, when we accelerated our withdrawal instead of September 11th, which was... A strange date to pick in any case, but accelerated that to like July 4th. Um, And the U.S. military pulled out much more rapidly, um, closed down Bagram, um, uh, which I think limited freedom of action greatly once we had to get more people out. Um, You know, that sent a signal (laughs) inadvertently to the Afghans, and I think it panicked them. And it start it sped up their the clock for their you know coming apart at the seams. So we we fail to take our own actions into account in the assessments too often. Yeah, right. So why do we do that? Is the question probably people are asking themselves. I think because uh, the intelligence community community is very very careful about not wanting to make policy or assess policy or weigh in on policy or suggest that they're policymakers. So they tend to say, look, that's a, 
you know, whatever option the U.S., you know, chooses, that's sort of a policy issue for the president and the National Security Council and the interagency process. We're not assess. We don't assess the U.S. We don't assess U.S. actions. But you think that's a mistake? I mean, wouldn't the more rational and logical and strategic thing to do, wouldn't it be to give the president various options and say, if everything remains static, here's our prediction. If we engage in this policy or practice, here's a slightly different prediction, and so on and so forth. No, I I do think that you could certainly legitimately ask them to say, if we do X, how will the Afghans react? If we do Y, how does your assessment of the Afghan reaction change? I think, um, and you know, I just don't know whether those questions were were asked. Um, yeah, describe for people a little bit what it's like to be the president, who is a commander in chief but a civilian. And he or she is weighing various options, whether it's withdrawal from Afghanistan, supporting Ukraine in a particular way, making certain statements to the counterpart in China. The president doesn't really know anything, right? Right. The president gets briefed. The president is not talking to uh, intelligence sources. The president is getting briefed by people in his administration, including the SecDef and people below that uh, position. How, how is the president of the United States, whether Democrat or Republican, supposed to assess information that is being given to the president? What are, what are the questions that you ask? How do you weigh the different options, especially given the history, which every president must be aware of, of mistakes being made and miscalculations being made? I think there are a couple of things I would say. One is the president has to rely on his or her team. And that means they have, it's really important to create a leadership climate where people can question assumptions, raise, you know, voice dissent, um, have a contrary view, uh, question the conventional wisdom. Um, my example of the best version of this I ever saw in practice was President Obama, who used to, you know, not only ask, create that environment, you know, dynamic with people around the table, the principals, but also go around the back of the room and solicit, actively solicit dissent. Um, even when something as important as the bin Laden raid, you know, he creates a red team to look for alternative um, to interpretations of the intelligence, to ask the open question of, should we even do this? Do we know enough to do this? Not just debating different ways to do it. So it's really, really important. And you see when it's absent, you know, look at Putin's strategic miscalculation in yeah. Ukraine in an authoritarian system where that you can't question assumptions or you do so at your peril. You don't think all of his staff is questioning him and being devil's no. advocate? I mean, I think that televised <laughs> national security meeting where people were, you could see them, they were visibly terrified to be speaking to him. Well, maybe they are, but he can't hear them because they're 30 feet away. Well, right, that's true too. But anyway, so I think a president has to create that kind of climate um, and to really solicit dissent and to constantly probe and ask the hard questions um, and, to, and to make sure that his staff, his National Security Council staff, um, is, is doing that uh, as well. Um, I think the other thing that often, you know, the, the folks in, in the Pentagon don't always appreciate is 
the president is weighing a larger set of factors. So the military may bring forward options to optimize, you know, lower risk and kind of optimize an approach in a, in a particular situation. But the president's thinking about not only that, but how does this affect the rest of my foreign policy agenda? How does it affect my agenda on Capitol Hill? Do I have enough political capital to pursue this as well as pursuing my economic agenda or my domestic agenda or whatever it is? So it's the president has to put a particular decision in a much larger context that is really outside the boundaries of what you know, military planners, Pentagon planners um, typically consider. So that's really interesting. And I saw that in practice as a member of the Justice Department. The question is, should very smart and wise military advisors at the Pentagon in formulating recommendations for the president take into account these other things that naturally and legitimately and appropriately the president might have no, to- No, not their job. They should advocate for what they think is best. Here's my best military advice yeah. for accomplishing this mission. And then the it's the White House's job to come back and say, okay, that's great in a totally unconstrained resource environment. But if my resources are more constrained or the timing is more limited or whatever the, the other constraint because of these other factors, you know, tell me, now go reassess within that constraint and tell me what the you know, your confidence in accomplishing the mission, but also the level of risk and how that's increased and, you know, how you view that. So it's a dia it's a it's a really important dialogue, but it's not the military's role to try to guess what those larger factors are. That's that's something for the president's staff. Yes. And, and and frankly the Office of Secretary of Defense part of I used to call my position as undersecretary for policy, the ball bearing between <laughs> the NSC and the the joint staff or the military, because I was, you know, you kind of have a translate translating force coming from both sides or pressure from both sides in turn into terms that the other could understand. So White House guidance for planning, translating that into terms that make sense for the military, military concerns, objections, you know, worries, translating that back into the policy process at the White House. With respect to the Ukraine war, do you think it was more that we underestimated the Ukrainians or that we overestimated the Russian forces or some combination of the two? It's a combination. We certainly overestimated Russia, uh, the Russian military. I mean, we, we looked at their force tables, their, you know, their uh, order of battle, if you will, you know, the, the stuff they have, the, um, the units, the personnel. And we assumed that they were all exceedingly capable. Um, and what we found is that um, they had real trouble. They had trouble with command and control. They had trouble with leadership. They had trouble with communications. They had trouble with logistics. They had trouble in an urban environment when they were meeting an unconventional sort of defense from the Ukrainians. So um, I think we overestimated them. And then um, maybe, you know, I think we probably did underestimate the Ukrainians a bit. Um, the, The asymmetry of will when you are defending your homeland and your families and your property and your future, you know, that counts for a lot. 
And again, we had done a lot of training and advising and equipping of them to be able to um, really challenge the Russians in some ways. Um, now, um, I think, you know, moving forward, it's an open question as to how all of this is going to play out. Um, but I think initially, we, we, it was a combination. But would the military take into account what you called the, asymmet the asymmetry of will? Or are they only looking at numbers of tanks and munitions and that sort of thing? No, I think they, I think they generally would. Um, I think that we probably didn't appreciate the level of popular resistance, the fact that, you know, Ukrainians lined up by the thousands to get trained, you know, get a weapon and get trained on how to use it. Um, so that's a hard factor to, to estimate um, if you haven't seen it before. So what's going to happen, Michelle? Well, I think right now, um, once again, the Russian offensive is stalling. Um, I think the Ukrainians will make some tactical gains. Um, but I think we are heading towards uh, somewhat of a stalemate. Uh, you know, I, I do think it's possible that the Ukrainians will um, take back Kherson um, and limit the Russians' expansion, you know, from the east further into the heartland of Ukraine. But I, I don't believe, I mean, the key factor that's missing is Vladimir Putin has not realized that his military cannot attain his objectives. And he believes that if time may be on his side in the sense that the longer this takes, the more he's counting on NATO cohesion to uh, fall apart. Right. And, and so he's playing for time, but he's got some serious problems in terms of um, he's running out of people. He doesn't want to do a national mobilization because of the political implications of that. He's running, you know, he's running out of replacement equipment and our export controls are really hampering his ability to produce new materiel. So he's got some serious problems on his side. And oh, by the way, the sanctions are starting to really bite in his economy. Um, we saw, a, you know, a big contraction of the Russian economy in the last quarter. Do we need more sanctions? I don't know that it's more sanctions. I do think we want to, you know, you know, we all wish that 10 years ago, Europe would have started to, after Crimea, or maybe seven years ago, would have started to wean itself off Russian oil and gas. I think they will do that, spend the next decade doing that. But right now, they're still quite vulnerable. Um, and so I think there are political limits to what we can ask from them. Um, I do think we need to continue to supply and support the Ukrainians with um, with military hardware that is really making a difference on the battlefield, particularly some of these precision-guided munitions. Do you think that Russia will always be able to find other buyers for oil and gas as the Europeans wean themselves off? Yes, I mean, I think they're. I think I think they they likely will, and so that is going to continue to be a source of revenue. But, um, you know, other parts of the economy are really suffering. And, and many of them, you know, m much of that is actually affect, affecting everyday Russians who can't go to the store and buy the things they're used to buying, who have to wait in lines, who are paying higher prices, and all of that. Do you think we underestimate or overestimate Putin himself? I, um... <laughs> 
I uh, I don't know that we underestimate or overestimate him, but I think he's just um, he has such a different calculus than we the way we think. Um, this is a legacy issue for him. This is a survival issue, political survival issue for him. He has, you know, he's one of these people who keeps doubling down on bad policy, and so it becomes impossible for him to walk away from it. My my one hope is that, you know, at the end of the day, if he does decide he can't as achieve his objectives, at least for now, that given his overwhelming control of propaganda and information inside Russia, he will put lipstick on a pig. You know, he'll, he'll dress some kind of compromise up for domestic consumption to live to fight another day. That said, I think it's as or more likely that if he's really got his back up against the wall, meaning all of this has led him to no gains beyond what he had when he started, then you could see that's the scenario where we have to worry about escalation from, from the Russian side. That pig is getting mighty ugly. Yeah, it's getting really ugly. And the more time that goes by, it gets uglier and uglier. And then that escape hatch becomes even less and less plausible, right? Um, I think the key factor will be, can he say that he's got more than he had um, on February 24th when the invasion started? The problem is, um, on the Ukrainian side, you know, I think Zelensky and others are still pretty committed to no territorial gains um, from this uh, this aggression. So right now, if you imagine a Venn diagram where circles overlap, you know, the interests of the two sides or the objectives of the two sides, and it's that middle section of overlap that allows for some kind of settlement, right now the circles don't overlap. There is no Venn diagram. Yeah, what's interesting, um, I keep asking you the question, are we underestimating or overestimating various people? And I won't ask you that of Zelensky. Although I think universally he was underestimated. And there's not a lot of data sometimes to assess how someone will step into a role that they've never occupied before. And some people step up, you know, very well and some people don't. And I don't mean to compare Zelensky and Obama, but my question is, what what are the qualities of somebody who has no military experience taking over as commander-in-chief of their country? What are the qualities that make them good at being commander-in-chief if they have no training? Number one is they have to be able to listen and learn. So a good podcaster would be a great commander. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they have to listen and learn. I mean, one of the things that Obama really did was he got into the details and some people faulted him for micromanagement, but I actually think he was being a really responsible commander in chief and understanding that this is an area where I don't have background. I'm about to make decisions that will put Americans in harm's way, you know, or whatever, that has, you know, real consequence for the nation. And I've got to understand, you know, what this is, involves and what the implications are and and so forth. So I think, you know, the self-awareness to know what you know and what you don't know and the openness to listen and learn so that you really are comfortable making a decision when it comes to making a decision. But also leadership. I mean, you have to be able to inspire people with a vision. You have to be able to rally people to your cause um, to to explain it to the American people and have them understand, uh, or in the case of Zelensky, to the Ukrainian people, to understand 
why are we doing this? Why is the sacrifice worth it? What, you know, where is this going to take us as a country? Um, so those, you know, communication and leadership skills are very important as well. And how, how, what should be your risk-taking profile? I think it depends. I, I don't think you can answer that question in general. Yeah. If it's about the survival of your homeland, as in the case of Ukraine, you know, you're going to have a pretty high risk tolerance to defend that. You know, if it's something that is, uh, you know, nice to do, but not a vital interest, then your risk profile should be a lot lower. Well, so let me ask you about that. I, I wanted to, to ask about the bin Laden raid. Am I correct that you were in the Situation Room when that was yes. taking place? Mm-hmm. Um, f- first, just as a personal matter, before we get to, to the decision, when you're in that room, does time slow down? And what I mean by that is, are, are you noticing every detail and watching everyone's face and watching the screen, or is it all a blur in retrospect? It, it's the longest day. You know, <laughs> it's, it, it slows down. Minutes become hours because um, there's so much on the line. And, you know, obviously that moment when the actual operation is being executed is preceded by months and months and months of time in the Situation Room looking at the intelligence, looking at, you know, debating whether we know enough to pursue it, debating the implications of pursuing it, looking at the different kinds of options for how you do it, debating those, then debating who do you tell when, who do you bring in, who do you tell after the fact, you know, the whole diplomacy of it. Um, it's it, So it's hours and hours and hours to get to that point, but then once you're there, everybody's holding their breath, um, and, you know, and minutes are, are very long. Do you find yourself eating a lot or eating nothing? <laughs> <laughs> These are the things that my listeners want to know. Generally don't allow a lot of food in the situation room, so we weren't eating a whole lot. <laughs> oh, I guess that's right. But the, I think the dining hall is not that far from the situation room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Michelle Flournoy after this. support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. You were saying a minute ago about risk profiles, that if something is existential, like in the case of Zelensky, you have to be able to take on a lot of risk. And you made a comment, I think something like, well, if something is nice to do but not essential, then the risk profile should be lower. Is, is that how you would characterize the taking out of bin Laden, something nice to do but not essential, or something different? No, I think I think that given bin Laden's leadership, um, both symbolic and operational, um, and his role in 9-11, and the importance of sort of bringing him to justice as a means of offering some closure um, to the country, I, I think it was very, very important. 
Um, but we, you know, you have, if you're going to take this on, first of all, you have to debate, do, are we really confident, A, that it's him, because the intelligence was circumstantial, not direct, B, that we can actually pull this off, yeah. and what are the risks, you know, what happens if we fail, um, what happens, you know, if we do it this way versus that way, do we unintentionally make him more of a martyr and make it this worse for ourselves? I mean, there are all kinds of things that had to be to be um, weighed. But I will tell you the most memorable moment of that whole thing um, was at the end when, you know, two in the morning or whatever it was, walking out of the White House and hearing this like thousand people singing the national anthem and America, the beautiful, you know, just, and I, you know, at that point with all the stress and everything else, you just kind of have to shed a few tears, but that sense that it really did matter to, to Americans, to average Americans that really mattered. Can you explain to people when it is during that months long process of gathering intelligence and coming up with the proper plan when the actual green light takes place? Is it at the very, very end? Does the president have the ability to say, go forward or not? Or is it some days in advance and then it just takes time to put together? Well, there, there's a major sort of, okay, this is what we're going to do kind mm-hmm. of decision um, that happened, you know, I would say, kind of within weeks of the actual raid. Um, and then there's a tactical decision that, you know, is the moonlight right? Is the weather right? What kind of activity are we seeing in the region? You know, like all of the tactical judgments to say that there's higher or lower risk of going right this moment. So that is a final sort of, go, you know, recommendation that comes from the military commander as from a tactical point of view, um, are all the factors lining up to make this a good window. So is there a final green light? Yes. Um, right at the end. Yes. And how close in time to the raid is that final green light? It was pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> does 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 Obama or other people in the in the White House that you have known do they ask the very annoying question that a lot of leaders ask, and that is, what's the likelihood of success? What's the percentage likelihood of success that this or that other thing will go right? Yes, um, they do, and one of the th- but again. You know, and you've been key, a, I bet you've been asked that many yeah, times, right? You can, y- yes, and that's the, a good. That's the right question to ask. But I think the other question is to say, how do I buy down my risk? So, for example, one of the concerns that was raised um, in the planning was, what if a helicopter goes down and our guy? Do our guys get stuck? I mean, then there's a real threat to the mission. Like, what happens? And so, you know, we planned for that, and there were other helicopters waiting close by, ready to go in, only to go in if there was a problem with one of the first two. So you you do planning to, you know, you have plan A, plan B, plan C, plan all the way to Z or double Z. I mean, you you have contingency plans that further lower the risk. And once all of that is in place, then you can, all, you know, amend your assessment to say, okay, you know, it's it, the odds have have improved or the the risks have been lowered. We were talking earlier in the conversation about the necessity of advisors giving military advice strictly as military advice, right? And not taking into account politics or other you know constraints 
on the president's decision-making, the bin Laden raid, um, I think from a political perspective, if it had gone poorly, I would think have been very, very costly. I think yeah. it would have entered the presidency. I think he would not have been reelected. Yeah. Yeah. It was early in his presidency. And, and, and even in that context, are the, are the, the advisors on the action, the raid, uh, part of conversations about politics or part of conversations about... Yeah, I mean, that's the... Yeah. The NSC process, as you know from your time, is, yeah. is it's fully interagency. So the military is going to be sitting in the room when someone raises, well, what if we fail? Or what if it's not him? Or what if, um, you know, we do this in a way that, you know, our team gets stuck on the ground and can't be extracted or, you know, all of these things. And... But I'm just, my point was that it's not the military's job to self-constrain by right. guessing what those assumptions are. Its job is to offer best military advice and then to have others say, you know, advise the president and the president say, okay, well, I'm concerned about this, so I'm going to add this constraint or that constraint or this, you know, additional objective. And then they go back to the drawing board and in light of those constraints, they revise, but their job is not to guess what those are or decide what those are. It's that's somebody else's job. What's what's the role of temperament in a commander in chief? And the, re the reason I ask that question, and I've said this many times, after the fact of the Bin Laden raid, what so impressed me was looking back at the Saturday night of that weekend was the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Mm -hmm where the commander-in-chief, who was really exercising his power as a commander-in-chief behind the scenes, unbeknownst to all of the rest of us, and he's calmly making jokes with pretty good timing <laughs> while this thing is, is over his head. Was, was that, what was his temperament behind the scenes, and how important is that? Um, Obama, President Obama was, um, I think, had incredible sense of responsibility, but also in a very strong equilibrium and ability to um, sort of control his own, uh, you know, how he communicated, how he's expressing himself. You know, this is a person who, you know, very uh, thoughtful, mature, responsible president. Um, and, you know, he knew the stakes and he knew that success depended on complete surprise and total secrecy and that he wasn't going to um, change anything in his planned routine to suggest that something else was going on, which is why he showed up at the correspondence right. dinner as planned. So um, I understand him showing up. I didn't expect his comic delivery to be so so good, <laughs> Clear, clearly. I think he's also had the ability to compartmentalize, you know? I mean, to compartmentalize. Okay, this is, I'm going to deal with that later. Right now I'm on a stage and my job is to make jokes. Um, but you can't imagine, you know, the contrast with a President Trump, for example, who is famous for having just, you know, watched some commentator on Fox News Yeah. And then turn around and order the Pentagon to do something with no process, no weighing of options, no weighing of risks, cost benefit, et cetera. So the contrast is you couldn't get more stark in terms of the decision making and leadership style of the two presidents. I want to ask you about China and Taiwan. Do, do you mm -hmm. have any view of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan? 
Well, look, I think, you know, it's, uh, I think she had um, every right to go. I think it's important that we do show support for Taiwan, um, given the tremendous pressure that it is under from China. But I also think that the timing was unfortunate um, in that, yeah, you know, Xi Jinping is heading towards his 20th Party Congress, where he will be presumably given a third term as head of the Chinese Communist Party. He's in a pretty difficult situation domestically. You know, his handling of COVID has uh, not won, won him any popularity contests. It's been pretty botched. His economy is contracting, which is always kind of terrifying for this the Communist Party. Um, and, you know, now he's got a crisis on his hands that um, we're at a time when he really wants stability. So, um, it you know, it was the timing was unfortunate, but I don't question her right to go. And I think once it was known that she was planning to go politically here, she almost had no choice because, you know, if she backed down, yeah. she'd be bowing to Chinese coercion and threats and she'd be hammered by, you know, um, the the Republicans and, and so forth. So, um, yeah, so that's what I would say. Yeah. You know, one theme of this conversation as it has unfolded, has been underestimating or overestimating people and countries. And I noted that you said something recently in an interview about China. You said, quote, I worry about China miscalculating because the narrative in Beijing continues to be one of U.S. decline, that the U.S. is turning inward. That's very dangerous if you underestimate your potential adversary, end quote. Are they wrong to be underestimating us? They are wrong to be underestimating us. <laughs> and why is that? First of all, um, you know, they, they're sort of drinking their own Kool-Aid. You know, if, you, if you're in Beijing right now, you watch the nightly news, state provided, um, and you just see video after video of, you know, January 6th, collapsing condos in Florida, you know, all this, this sort of evidence of U.S. decline, U.S. falling apart at the seams, etc., and if you really sort of start to believe that narrative, you will think, oh, the U.S. isn't going to show up. The U.S. isn't capable um, of, of helping Taiwan or helping to defend Taiwan if it's attacked. Um, you know, this is our time. This is our moment. So why don't we don't go, just go ahead and get, get this over with? Now, I want to be clear. I think that Xi's preferred approach is political coercion and economic pressure. He would like maybe... At some point, you know, some version of what we just saw exercise, some kind of blockade. He wants to pressure Taiwan into capitulation. He doesn't want to have to invade the island. That said, if those options are foreclosed and he anticipates that over time, the U both Taiwanese self-defense and U.S. defense of the island will only get stronger as additional capabilities are come online, there is a window where he could decide okay, this is going to get harder, not easier. This is absolutely critical to my legacy and to our quote-unquote national rejuvenation project, and um, I'm going to get this done. So that's what I worry about. It's sort of the near to midterm yeah. that he could miscalculate. And you add to that the lack of communication, the lack of mutual understanding, um, and the lack of dialogue. And, you know, I think the risk of miscalculation goes up. 
Right. I mean, in, in a lot of contexts, not in the military context, you don't mind being underestimated by your adversary. That's good in politics, for example. Here, it's not good. No, it's not good because they could take a chance yes. and start a war that they don't really want to be in. Would you say that NATO is at its high watermark at this moment? I, I mean, NATO's had very strong moments throughout history, but I think certainly this is this is one of them. I think that the alliance has really come together. I think, um, frankly, the addition of Sweden and Finland is going to add um, both you know, two very capable uh, additional members in geography that really matters. Um, so I do think, I think that the alliance has come together remarkably well um, during this Ukraine crisis. So you're an expert on many things, including these issues. If I had said to you a year ago that next summer Sweden and Finland would be in NATO, how surprised would you have been? I would have been surprised. <laughs> Not shocked, but surprised. I've been talking to them. I've been visiting them, talking with them. There's always been a contingent in each country that advocated for it, but politically it was never doable or seen as important, you know, not not seen as it's not the right time or it's not really necessary. We have these great bilateral relationships. And it, I think it took this crisis to create the upswell of public support um, for becoming part of the alliance formally. I'm going to ask you a question now. What happens to the NATO alliance and maybe other alliances if Donald Trump gets reelected to the presidency in 2025? I I am very worried. <laughs> I mean, uh, Trump made no secret of his utter disdain for NATO, um, his lack of understanding of why it exists, what it's for, why it's a huge source of strategic advantage for us, um, his tendency to cozy up to Putin, to dis to to sort of dismiss or or. Um, discount um, Russian bad behavior. Um, I think it's very, very problematic. And I think the the one concern I hear um, over and over and over again from all of our allies and partners, not just Europe, but Asia and around the world is what do we, you know, can we count on American leadership? Can we count on the kind of, you know, steady commitment and, and credible commitment, you know, if your politics are making these huge swings, and if, if particularly if Trump or someone like him with an isolationist bent returns. But do you think that the strength NATO has shown in connection with the conflict between Russia and Ukraine will not have moderated that view or maybe even made it worse? Well, I think, you know, a lot of this could be changed under a President Trump, a re-elected re President Trump. Um, and so this, it's, you know, this is not a, a something that will endure forever. It takes constant, you know, tending and investment and, you know, adaptation. And I think if Trump came in and decided to change course, a lot of the progress that we've seen could be lost. You worked, as you have mentioned, in the Obama administration. But interestingly, something that maybe a lot of people who are listening don't know, is you were asked to come into the Trump administration by Trump's first defense secretary, Jim Mattis. And he asked you to be his number two, which I take it is a, is a pretty big job and a good job. 
in an administration. Am I right about that? Yes. Um, and the only reason I even considered it <laughs> was because it was Jim Mattis. And I had, you know, I had worked with him closely when he was a combatant commander and even prior and had tremendous um, respect for him. And, you know, I'm a public servant at heart. I've got the public service gene. So when someone asks you to serve you, you take it seriously. But what I figured out pretty quickly is, you know, I had almost zero overlap from a policy perspective with with um, the Trump administration. And um, when I really knew that this was not going to, this is not possible, was, you know, when Jim Mattis, in his swearing-in ceremony, President Trump, who was there, surprised him by taking out of his folder the Muslim ban and signing it at Jim's Swearing in, ceremony. I forgot that. And at that moment, I was <laughs> oh, like, goodness. "Oh my God, what was? I, I could not be part of this. This is just." How many days do you think you would have lasted? Oh, I mean, no, I wouldn't have. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem. You know, you don't... Why, why did? And you can toot your horn here as appropriate if you want. I don't toot my own horn. <laughs> I know you don't, but you should. Um, what was Jim Mattis thinking in bringing and asking to bring in? a person who, by your own description, didn't have a lot of overlap with Trump policy. Well, he didn't either. That was the ironic yeah. <laughs> ironic thing. I mean, I think he really felt that he was trying to, even from the beginning, um, create a bit of a bulwark or some uh, shock absorber between <laughs> the Trump White House and the U.S. military. And his job, he felt, was, you know, A, to, to try to make the recommendations that he thought were best to support our national security, but also be to, to protect the U S military as an institution from politicization. Do you think it was a mistake for him to take that position? No. I mean, I actually think he did that for the time he was there. Um, I don't think he had a lot of fun doing it, but, um, and, you know, I think he had uh, a number of, um, difficult moments. But um, no, I, 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 for one, slept better at night knowing that he was, he was there. That said, I mean, I'm someone who has always argued that the Secretary of Defense position should be occupied by a civilian. Um, if you look back in history, you know, it had happened, uh, you know, when reporters called me at the time, I was like, well, when was the last time this happened? 70 years ago with George C. Marshall. That was a pretty extraordinary moment. This is an extraordinary moment with Donald Trump, you know, coming in, uh, given his proclivities and approach to things. Um, so, you know, I think as an exception, it made sense for for Mattis to be there. I asked this question of um, Admiral Stavridis when he was on. Um, so let me ask you also, do you have a sense of what Donald Trump's fundamental misunderstanding of the military and of generals is? Well, I think he was pretty clear in some of his comments to John Kelly. He expected total subservience and loyalty. He, they, <laughs> like the Germans. Yeah, like the Germans, which is also a misreading of history if you yeah. actually pay attention, but never mind. Um, you know, that that this was his his military, personal military, as opposed to what their actual oath says which is, I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States, not the, per, you know, and to the extent the commander-in-chief is part of the chain of command, um, if he's giving a lawful order, um, 
then you should be obeying it or, you know, resigning if you can't. But it's more, I think, the concerns about Trump coloring outside the lines and trying to um, ask the military to do things like, you know, come into Lafayette Square and be prepared to shoot civilian, you know, their fellow Americans, civilian protesters who were obeying the law and having a peaceful protest. How does the the current U.S. military in 2022 treat women? Look, I think um, it's made some progress. Um, You see more women leaders coming up in the pipeline, um, but you still see an unacceptable level of sexual harassment and assault. Um, It's a leadership issue. It's a culture issue. In some respects, you know, it's an institution made up of our society, volunteers from our society. So to some degree, it's going to reflect that society and larger trends. Um, but I think the, the, the fact that we are still dealing with these levels of uh, harassment and assault is completely unacceptable. And I, I welcome some of the legislative initiatives and, frankly, the initiatives that this administration has made to really um, sort of go after this issue more aggressively. Because the truth is, it, it's the number one thing that hurts recruitment and retention. Um, for for women serving. And who wants to have a volunteer military where you take half of the population off the table as a source of talent? Doesn't right. make sense. No, absolutely. You know, as people may know, you have been, I think, at least once, if not more than once, on the shortlist to be defense secretary yourself. Did you think about what, how that would be received inside and outside of the Pentagon because you'd be the first woman secretary of defense? Well, I, I must say, you know, in those moments of being considered, I did, I did feel um, the weight of all the women who it would be opening the door for um, behind me. I felt, I felt that. And I also felt that as a tremendous source of, of support. Um, uh, but I, I, I didn't worry about it in the sense that, you know, my experience, my experience in the Pentagon as undersecretary um, I had no problem, you know, from a leadership and respect uh, perspective, being a woman. I th- and I think now you you have um, people like Kathleen Hicks, like Christine Warmoth, who are, you know, first women in their positions. And, you know, at some point, people are getting got to get over this, <laughs> you know, and they are yeah. getting and they are getting over this. And I think they both are very well respected and, and, you know, um, and doing well in their positions. So, um, again, we're making progress, but I think what concerns me most is not how women leaders are being treated because I think that's improved enormously, but the rank and file women who are serving, you know, in enlisted and junior officer ranks in the force are not necessarily being treated, um, uh, as equal. And that's still a problem. And and the culture and the leadership climate is not what it should be. Are we otherwise as modern as we should be as a military? You know, I think um, depends on what you mean by modern. I I I think that um, you know we think of ourselves as the best military in the world, and we are. But it only that's only remains true as long as we keep investing 
in the people and the capabilities to, to be that. And I think given the period of technological disruption we're experiencing, um, we have got to keep bringing on new technologies, um, whether it's um, you know leveraging AI, whether it's leveraging unmanned systems that are you know controlled by human beings, but they're uh, you know un some aspect is unmanned. Um, whether it is you know hypersonics or directed energy, there are all these new disruptive technologies that our adversaries, our potential adversaries, are investing enormous amounts of money in, and we've got to keep up. And not only keep up, but figure out how do we preserve our advantage by leveraging these new technologies in new ways with new operational concepts that keep our advantage. Because it's if we just fight the last war, the you know in the old way, um, when a new challenge comes, that is not going to be a recipe for success. And most importantly, um, we have to credibly deter. I mean, the name of the game. China, a nuclear power, is not to fight a war with them. Um, it is to deter and prevent a war with them. And that's where we need to be focusing much more of our attention. Is, is quantum computing one of those areas, as our mutual friend Ian Bremer keeps telling me? Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you say to, to critics, not of you, uh, but of the amount of money that the U.S. spends on the Department of Defense. I'm sure there are listeners here who wonder to themselves, can't the military do with a little bit less so we can spend more on social programs or, or some other things? How, how, do you, how do you defend the budget of the Pentagon? Well, first of all, I think you know the comparisons to other countries are misleading because no other country has the same role that the United States has in, in terms of having a global role and global interests to protect. Um, and allies and so forth. So, our, given that role, you know we're gonna we're gonna invest more in defense than many other countries. Um, number two, the biggest driver of rising costs in the Pentagon are actually not procurement; it's people, um, and the fact that you know, in terms of what we pay them and health and runaway health care costs for society, well, that shows up in our military bills as well. And those rising people costs are actually squeezing our research development and procurement costs. So I think one of the things that um, we have to do is understand that really going after healthcare costs is one of the best ways to control um, Pentagon spending <laughs> um, and to make room to make sure that there's more of the budget that can actually be invested in these new technologies and concepts that will give us the edge in the future. You've been very generous with your time. Michelle Flournoy, thank you for joining us and thanks for your service. Happy to join you. Thanks for a great conversation. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Michelle Flournoy. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet or... 
you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.